Before we begin, a disclaimer. This podcast is for information only. I am not a mental health or medical professional, nor are my guests unless otherwise stated. My guests and I do not speak for or represent any recovery programs or workshops. I do not sell ads on this podcast, and I do not make any money from it. And finally, I want to warn you that some episodes may contain content about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, which some listeners may find triggering or dysregulating. Hello, and welcome to the Loving Parent Podcast. If you're new here, this is where we explore the ideas of becoming our own loving parents and reparenting our trauma to build resilience. If you've been here before, welcome back. My name is Brita, and I'm your host. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the podcast where we continue with our visit with Teresa. We're going to talk about her adult years now from her marriage on to today. So, Teresa, thanks for coming back. Thanks, Brita. All right. I think when we left off last time, you had just married and moved to Chicago. Is that correct? Yes. I was living in Chicago and knew that we were not going to stay in Chicago. And we we knew we were going to be moving to the West Coast. Actually thought we would be living in San Francisco. So I had put my all my belongings in storage mm-hmm. until we could get our careers uh, moved to the West Coast. Right. And did you have children early on in your marriage? No, uh, we had no children in the first five years of our marriage. We actually moved to San Diego. And it was during the whole process of moving and, and, and everything that we found out that we were expecting our first child. Mm-hmm. So our first child was born in San Diego. Okay. I'm going to backtrack a little here and ask you, what was your first exposure to addictive substances, to alcohol and drugs? And did you ever teeter on the brink of becoming addicted? No, I, I didn't. Uh, I, I think it, first of all, seeing my mom as a smoker, my mom was a closet smoker. So she, I knew she um. smoked when I was a kid. And then when I became a teenager, she said she stopped, but she continued to smoke and mm-hmm. she would smoke in the bathroom. And I would, I would wash the walls in the bathroom, which is oh. very unusual for a teenager, but I remember doing that. And so I knew smoking had disgusted me and there was really no one in my environment who drank. Yeah. And, you know, although we had lots of alcohol because my parent, you know, my, somebody would go across the border and get this very special bottle. So we'd have this bottle, but we right. opened it and never opened it. It remained sealed. And then I hung around with pretty studious students that probably would never think of, of drinking anything. Right. Uh, so I never had, I, I didn't have any exposure to any drugs or I didn't hang around with the kids that did drugs. I was probably too nerdy for them and they would make fun of me. Anyway. Right. Yeah. So I was not, I was not, a, the only thing was as a teenager, I did like sweets and mm-hmm. I would take a lot of comfort in it, having sweets, but I didn't, I didn't gravitate to any of, you know, the, the, uh, 
the type of of things that like drugs and alcohol. No, right. No, never. Yeah. Yeah. And your husband didn't either. He that wasn't an issue for him. It was definitely an issue for him. Was um, it? It was an issue. His father was an alcoholic and his mother was a hoarder. So I knew that there were problems with his father, but his parents were divorced. And when I met his father, I never saw him drinking. I don't even know if he was still drinking, but my husband, Mm. he started drinking alcoholically almost 10 years into the marriage, about 10 years he started. And I became concerned and he did go to an outpatient rehab, but to my knowledge, he never got sober and he left uh, about eight years ago and um, we are no longer married. That process evolved last year. So I, I think he still definitely drinks mm-hmm. and that affects our family. Right. So how many children do you have and what are their ages? Do you have kids at home, kids in, in college? What What's that family look like? So we have three children. We have a senior who's moving to college uh, mm-hmm. shortly. And then a pair of eighth graders, boy, girl, mm-hmm. who, who are in middle school and will move to high school next year. Oh, wow. So you've got a lot going on in that family. I do. I think that because I've been in program almost all their lives, Mm-hmm. It's helped. It's it has helped, but it it is a very we have a very dysfunctional home. Yeah. So, did you start going to a family recovery program when your husband started drinking alcoholically, or did it take you several years to get there? What What was the story there? When he decided to um, in 2010, he told me he was an alcoholic, and then in the beginning of 2012, went in. No, in the fall of 2011, in the fall, uh, started, he was still, no, he had gone, started going, he had started going to in the middle of 2010, but his sponsor had told him to tell me to go to, and so I Googled, I didn't know Uh what it was, and then I started going and have been going ever since. Okay. Continue to this day. Yes. (laughs) Okay. And what brought you to that original, um, meeting for uh, recovering adult children? I think it was because I didn't know what to do. And I was really scared. And it was a similar fear feeling of Mm -hmm. when my grandmother and my aunt were, were going to this facility, I, I just had a very similar feeling and didn't, didn't know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. So had someone told you about this program or did you like, you know, like you said, Google things and came upon it on the internet? My husband's sponsor told Mm -hmm. me to go. He told me to tell, tell Teresa to go. Okay. So I went. Okay. And you said you didn't feel at home the first time and you stayed away for another three years. Then what brought you back? My second recovery program, I did, I would say what happened was a therapist had told my husband to go to Uh and I wanted to check it out. So I checked it out and realized it wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. 
And so I didn't return. I then found myself in a family therapist office and the family therapist had um, recovery books behind her and I kept borrowing them. And she said, you know, Teresa, you can buy them on Amazon. Uh And so I bought the books and I went back to the meeting that I'd gone to in 2016 and Mm -hmm. I stayed. Do you have any idea what made you feel more comfortable with staying the second time or what had happened in your life that maybe made you more receptive? I think reading the material, the material was extremely foreign to me. It was like learning a new language. Uh I did not understand. I had one of the workbooks and started to work that just like my first program, I tried to do everything on my own. Right. And so I looked at this book and I looked at it and I tried it. And then, and then I just, it was convenient. I, I the meeting location was convenient. The time mm-hmm. was lo- convenient. Um, my daughter was in high school, so she had practices on Saturday and we'd meet and mm-hmm. she and I would sit in the back of the meeting, which was great because I didn't want to sit with the group. Uh-huh. There was a lovely couch in the back of the room. No one bothered yep. us. Right. And I was totally fine. Yeah. I know I did very similar things when I first started trying to do things on my own. And I think it's because I was a reader when I was a kid and I could read about anything and figure it out. And this one, I finally realized I needed other people. Definitely a very challenging program. I would say not for the faint of heart (laughs) at all. I think it's because it's the one program where I am 100% accountable for myself Mm -hmm. and I cannot, I, I, I can no longer be chasing all those people out there to make me feel better. Mm-hmm. And this focus was totally on me. And I was, I was willing, to, I was willing just to hang out in that meeting. I think that mm-hmm. was what it was. I was willing to hang out. I didn't trust anybody there. I didn't feel comfortable. Every time I walked in, the floor squeaked. So I felt uncomfortable. <laughs> it does squeak. I recall that. Yeah, the stairs, the stairs are squeak, but nobody bothered me. Nobody. And so I was fine. Just going. Yeah, I know. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, we should have a greeter or we should have somebody who goes around after the meeting and welcomes all the newcomers. And I say, you know what, let them do this at their own pace, because we don't know what they need. They know what they need and they'll come to us when they're ready. That worked for me. I, yeah. I've heard other people say different things in all kinds of programs, in all programs. Right. Yeah. I've heard people say, and, and I just, I, I know, I know from the way I know from the talk and the conversation, whether they're not, whether they're getting something out of the program. Mm-hmm. And, and for those that I know are not, it's not my job to say, well, maybe you should try something different because right. I'm hoping someday something will click for them. Right. When you got into the adult children recovery program, did you start working the steps? I know you said you had the workbook for some of that. Um, did you start a step study, get a sponsor? What What were kind of your, your early recovery experiences? 
I joined just before COVID. So right. when COVID started, I heard of a Zoom meeting. And so I joined that Zoom meeting and it was out of, um, it was out of, uh, I forget the name, oh, Monterey Bay. Oh, and okay. I had already, I had already started the steps and they're a very proactive group there. They had kind of like two month programs on working the steps, working the traits. Mm. I found a sponsor through that meeting and they have monthly speaker meetings. And so I, I, I went to all of the meetings through Monterey Bay, mm-hmm. mostly because my sponsor, my sponsor was there too. Right. Yeah. And I never met my sponsor physically, but it was, a, it was an interesting relationship how that all evolved, but she really got me into the program and uh, quite fascinated. It was so great to have the support of these, you know, of a step study, of a trait study. And we went through and we talked and we had, a t- you know, we had time to share and there was a fellowship list that was distributed. And mm-hmm. so that was really, really helpful. I had a lot of help and a lot of support and I really hit the program really hard with that. Yeah. Do you feel that you've had a spiritual awakening? And if so, can you describe it? I've had many, many. Okay. I, I, I always want to start with, I was always a, a person who had a very strong intuition, very strong. Mm-hmm. I think what happened to me, though, was li- living with an active alcoholic really diminished that because mm-hmm. it, was, it was so hard to know what was what was right side up and what right. was upside down. So I think probably that took a, a bit of a beating but I have had several, several, and I'm, I, I have spiritual awakenings every single day. I have a, I've always had a a very strong faith because my grandmother was quite religious. Mm -hmm. My husband was a Catholic and we'd go to church every week. So I had a relationship with God. What happened for me in the program was that the program really showed me that, that I have the ability to find so much joy in my life and so much good that ties me to my higher power that really results in a spiritual awakening for me, even though things are really, really bad. I've had really, really horrific things happening to me in probably the last 10 years. And I'm still, you know, I still get up every day and I do my prayer meditation and I have them. And I, what I call my spiritual awakenings are all of the good things that I see in my life. And I experience them, you know, for me, it's through joy, it's through spirit and um, having that peace and balance. And so I know I, I'm either experiencing a spiritual awakening, I feel very grateful. And so for me, that's the closest in my experience. Mm -hmm to be as close as I can, or as close as my higher power has me reach to, to, to him. Um, And I do believe it's multiple sources, whether it's universe or people or God, it's everything. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Very very much the sunlight of the spirit. It's, I'm very comfortable in it. However, I've had to really work to have that relationship because I'm so self-reliant. 
Yes, I think that's what happens to people, especially when we're really intelligent and we've had a lot of experiences where we relied on ourselves and everything came out fine. So then it makes it a little harder to turn to that higher power. What I have found, and I had this experience this week, and that is to letting go and letting God, I can let go, mm-hmm. but I don't really let God in because I'm still holding on. I'm still mm-hmm. holding on until I think God's got it. So I'm yeah. waiting for the sign. And this week it came to me because I had several things happen that I was totally powerless over completely. And yeah. it was it was probably the perfect storm for me. And I just, I really, somehow I, it came to me that if I, because I couldn't hold on anymore. There was nothing left to hold on to. And then God just stepped in and everything, it wasn't what I thought it would be. It all shifted. Mm -hmm. What an amazing experience and sense of peace. So there was no voice. I wasn't hit by lightning. Right. but, But I had the feeling of peace and serenity and it's every, you know, things are getting worked through. Mm hmm. And I think that's, you know, that's the way I guess it's supposed to be. But I always, I'm, I'm over-responsible, right? right? So I'm over-responsible and I'm going to hold on until I know God's got the other end of the rope. Right. But I realize it's not quite how it works. Right. <laughs> it works better if you just turn it over, right? <laughs> yeah, just let go of the rope. Just like, do it. It's like, Teresa, just let go of the rope. Oh. Yeah. So when you've first came into this adult children recovery program and heard about the term reparenting. What, what did you think about that? Well, I didn't think I'd had too much of a problem because I knew that God loved me and I knew Mm -hmm. that I was taken care of. I I was, you know, I could have perished a couple of times. I was in a Mm -hmm. serious car accident when I was 20. I could have perished, but Mm -hmm. I had had a vision at that time. And so I knew I was always being taken care of. I realized as I've been in this program, and I do, I do realize that God's got my back, that there is something to this parenting. And Mm -hmm. it's taken me, I would say it's taken me a couple of years to really understand to, to take that thought. And, and it's come to me in such a way that this young child, Teresa, that used to love going out and playing and loving, Mm -hmm. you know, being outdoors was still there. However, she was being pummeled by this self-reliance Oh, and that when I prayed to God, the things that I thought should happen didn't happen. And I was in Mm -hmm. a great deal. I understand I was in a great deal of denial. So eventually what happened was I internalized the God that always loved me and very, uh, very seamlessly could take that love and apply it to something inside of me. I now know it to be my, my inner child. Um, Uh But definitely, I I could easily apply it. And it's still puzzle pieces to me. However, it's coming together. And it comes together when I know when I'm sad, when I'm hurt, when I'm Mm -hmm. wanting somebody to rescue me or wanting someone to fix me. 
Mm-hmm. There is another way for me to do this outside of going and manipulating and getting that person to take care of me. Right. It's taken a great deal of discomfort and just sitting there. But as I do in my, in my meditation, I have been able to, to take the love of God that I have and to apply that nurturing and that love to this being inside of me. And it can be anything I used, to, you know, it can be, I call, you know, it could be Holy Spirit. It could be inner mm-hmm. child. It could be my true. It can be Jesus. I just know it's something. Right. Yeah. Right. I yeah. just know it's something that I apply this love and self-compassion towards, and right. I can get results immediately. Yeah. I mean, to me, the power is love. That That's the name that I would apply to it. And the connectedness, <laughs> but the connectedness that we, you know, feel toward each other. And when I'm feeling that connectedness, um, I feel the love around me and the love that I have for others. Something that's interesting, as you mentioned, that is I'm, I'm doing a book study on nonviolent communication, and mm. we've been talking about feelings and needs and the challenge for me always was, well, well, where's the book? Where's the list of needs? Where's the list? So I can see which ones right. I have or which right. ones I need. And so it's taken some time for me to realize that the sense of community is my number one need. Mm-hmm. I've always loved being around people. And I, 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 it's, I grew up in a big family and right. um, I always had lots of friends. And that's why I do love the recovery programs because there's so much community. I have more friends than I could ever imagine that I could do anything and ask everything from. Mm -hmm. And so I am beginning to understand that that community comes from God. Right. Right. Love within that community comes from the love of God. And so somehow I've been able to take that, bottle it up and bring that inside. But I also had a very challenging time in understanding love because I was not told I was loved growing up, but Mm. I had a lot of love growing up. And for me, in our now, of course, with my own children and my own family and my nieces and nephews, I tell them I love them all the time. I am right. very much a nurturer and it's a big part of my life. I can't ever imagine not never having that, but I, right. to, I it took me some time to understand that's, that's what people are talking about. So when right. you say that means love, I then have to get out of my head and think about what it is you just described as being love, because I understand everybody has different definitions. In right. Life. Terminology, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I may not understand the word love, but I definitely know how it feels. Yeah. So I want to know how your relationship is today with the people in your family of origin, I realize your your folks are gone. Are all of your aunts gone? Yes. Yeah, so everyone is gone. My aunt passed away three years ago, and in my family of origin, there's only my sister, my brother, and I. And when my mom passed away in 2004, my sister started to drink alcoholically. It was 
rough. I I grew up extremely close to my sister, mm-hmm. very very close. Um, that must have been so hard to watch. It was it was probably terrifying because we didn't mm-hmm. know what was going to be. We we my brother and I did not we. we we just did not understand. Um, I think there was a great deal of fragmentation. Um, we grew up the three of that three of us very, very close. She, um, her children, um, suffered a great deal. Her husband suffered a great deal. When I started going to, um, I talked a lot to him about, um, really did, suggest to him that he think about leaving because my sister had had an affair and then she would get really difficult and drive off in a car and my brother-in-law said oh, gosh. I, you know who knows who she's going to kill he you know she's right to herself sure but she's what about all the other innocent people out there and when my aunt passed away three years ago my sister was helping my aunt and I never got the right medical information. And then my aunt passed away and my sister was hoarding stuff. And, and so it was very difficult. And um, she occasionally would say, well, you know, my kids think that I drink too much. And I said, Oh, and (laughs) right. um, Uh (laughs) exactly and I had never shared with my family my husband's drinking because I wanted to protect his anonymity right so they didn't know but lo and behold I went to Vancouver two weeks ago Uh and my brother-in-law is in recovery he's been sober two and a half years who I never really knew that he was a binger Uh, um, but my sister has been in recovery for five months Yay. And he, my brother-in-law said to me, I never would have thought this would have happened. He said, uh-huh. he said, I didn't know which one of us would, you know, was going to kill the other one. Yeah. And um, it was ex- an extremely violent marriage. And mm-hmm. um, um, they, uh, watching them, it's a delight to be in their company. A delight. Oh, wonderful. It, it's, it's, and my sister I don't know what happened, but my sister went to her husband when I was there and said, why did you tell my sister that I'm going to? And I I don't know if I openly told her that he told me or she told me she was going to. And I said, because she started in because she said, yeah, it was all her husband's fault. And I said, well, you know, your primary program is and not. And I think that's what she took offense to. Oh, although I had been going longer than she'd been going or, but they didn't know that. But, you know, my sister, she was okay. She was, you know, she's in her early, early days. And it is absolutely wonderful to have my sister back. I, I, just I can don't, imagine. Don't, That's how- yeah, don't know how to, how to describe it, but it's the most wonderful feeling in the world. It's a spiritual thing. That's about all I could say about it. It is. It yeah. really is. And my, for my brother-in-law, He's amazing. And um, I, I'm just, I'm amazed he held on as long as they've been married over 30 years. Oh my goodness. Probably 20 of those years they've been drinking alcoholically. Mm-hmm. Oh man. And they lived through it. You know, neither one of them's gotten sick or like you say, have that 
a horrible car accident or, you know, anything like that. That's really amazing that they've been able to do this. They were both highly functioning and very athletic. So yeah, that probably helped. Yeah. I think they're, they're, they had taken care of their bodies. And so they were able to deal with, with, with what they were putting themselves through. And I I was able to share with them the program Mm. to share some recovery I, I'm fully aware of the fact that that their path may be very different than my own, given right. their backgrounds. Uh, but it was it was amazing, and my kids loved being with them. My brother, a little different situation. My my brother married someone who um, I'm not really sure what what went on, but some dysfunction in that family. And he too has a very, very challenging marriage, very challenging. Um, Uh There is some violence in it. Um, My, my sister-in-law, probably a martyr. uh, Oh, uh codependent. Yeah. Their son, I do believe is in the early uh, stages of alcoholism. Oh, I think. Um, yeah. And, and my brother has, he's a good guy. I mean, he's a really good guy, but probably both very much enablers and mm-hmm. they don't have any recovery, but my brother is, a re- he has this, he's got a good head on his shoulder. So I do, you know, he's one of these natural, I had taken him actually to an, and their daughter, their other daughter to an, meeting, but definitely a lot of dysfunction uh, going on there too. That that's definitely some sort of uh, generational trauma of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it. I wanted to talk to you about the tools that you use in your recovery and your reparenting process. I know you've mentioned meditation several times during our talk. So that sounds like that's a really important tool for you. Are are there others besides maybe the meetings, writing, books that you've read that you'd like to share with our audience? I pray meditate every single morning. I read about 12 readers every morning. Mm-hmm. I, um, I don't journal every day, but pretty, pretty often. Um, I see a trauma therapist Mm -hmm. um, because I didn't get as much as I wanted to from a cognitive behavioral therapist. I wanted to go deeper. Right. I do fellowship. I do sponsor. I would say I, I live my life according to the program. That's how I live my life. And it's just, it's worked well for me. Mm -hmm. And my children, my children also um, have been in, in, in 12 step programs and will often come to meetings with me. Mm-hmm. So I would say with the exception of my husband, who I think goes to, um, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. We are, our family of four here. We, we very much live the program and, and, and we do, I do do a lot of reading. I, I, um, and you know, it's funny. And I do talk a lot to people. I talk a lot to people who I find out are adult children and have, you know, have very comfortable conversations with them mm-hmm. and, and let them know, you know, that I, I go to, if they're ever interested, I'd be happy to talk with them. Yeah. I have a fellow who texts me every single morning at about seven o'clock from one of the programs. I don't know how wide his network is, probably 
several hundred people. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he puts together a, a, a saying every single day. And I don't go a day without reading that. And, and really, that's, that's really my guiding light. He really is my guiding light. Yeah, that's, that just sounds wonderful that you have this stuff kind of built into your life now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, Teresa, this has been a most enjoyable interview. That's all the time we have for now. I hope people get as much out of this as I have. I've learned a lot from from our talk today. And I really, really thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast. Thank you so much, Bria. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me for this episode. It was produced by me, Brita Firm, and edited by Vaughn David. Our music is by Emmanuel Wild. If you like what you heard, please leave a positive review and tell a friend. Also, tap subscribe and notifications so you won't miss a single episode. Remember, as you walk your reparenting path, you can take your time. You deserve all the love you want, and my love goes with you.